If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're finishing off the second half of this chapter that we started last week. Romans 6, 15. A number of years ago, uh, our family lived across town uh, over, um, over by Nordale School, if you know where that is. And we lived right across the street uh, uh, from the school for about four years. And over on that side of town, there is uh, a little yellow building just beyond now the roundabout that's newly been put over there. Just beyond the roundabout on the left-hand side, there's a little yellow building. And it had been a number of restaurants over the year. In fact, uh, it sort of became a little, little comical to us that about, it seemed like about every six months, a new vinyl sign would go up outside and it would be a new restaurant. The first one I remember, I think, was a Hawaiian restaurant. And that sounds good, although I never ended up there. Uh, and then I think it became a sandwich shop, then a noodle shop, probably a Thai restaurant at some point in there just because that's what Fairbanks does. But just about every few months, it, it would continue uh, to change. And again, it, it sort of made us chuckle a little bit. And we didn't know if these were businesses that were starting and folding or if this was the same owner just trying a new menu each, each time. I, I don't truly know. Uh, but I just kept, I was thinking about that vinyl sign, the new vinyl sign that would just go up every few months. And here's the sign that really gets my attention around town. It's the sign that says, under new management. When you see that, doesn't that just pique your curiosity? Don't you want to know what happened? Like I, I ask myself, what, what are they saying with that sign? Because it sounds to me something like, listen, we had a manager. He's pretty, he's pretty bad. We all thought he was bad. He was a bad guy. He was terrible. We got rid of him. We have a new manager now. He's a good guy. We know you got burned, your, you know, your business. You weren't served well, whatever. And now we're, we're here to serve you correctly. Come on back. Bring your money, right? That, that's what goes on in my head. That's what I hear when I see that sign um, under new management. And I, I always, I'm always curious for the backstory here. But that phrase, under new management, I think is a fairly apt summary of Paul's main point in this second part of chapter 6 in Romans here. And to be honest with you, today's sermon, very similar to last week's sermon, because Paul's passage is very similar to last week's Passage. So this is a little bit of same song, second verse, uh, if you will. Last week we talked sort of about the sort of the process of sanctification, that is life transformation and becoming like Jesus. And I noted that it's kind of it's helpful for that to be really successful when we have sort of two parts or two stages to that. One where we turn away from something first stage, and then make a break with something, uh, like uh, make a break with sin. And then the second step, to live into something, to make a decision to live into righteousness, but sort of that two-stage process. And I illustrated that with my choosing to sell my snowboard, you know, the one that Gus didn't even believe I ever had, right? And to live into cross-country skiing when we moved here. And that was sort of the change in my life. And here in the second part of this section in chapter six, Paul fo focuses a little bit more on that second bit, the positive engagement with righteousness. And then he lays out and shows the benefits of doing so. So Romans 6, starting at verse 15. What then? 
Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, or as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Well, last week, Paul starts with the question, well, what shall we say then? Shall we sin so that grace may increase? You know, sort of in that vision, it was, well, if, if, if in our sin, we actually see the magnification of God's grace, then let's just sin all we can. Let's just blow up God's grace. That'd be awesome. And of course, Paul shoots that down. And this week, the question changes a little bit. This week, the question is, well, shall we go on sinning just because we can because God's gracious and, and God's forgiving. That's in his job description, so he'll do that. So can we just presume upon his grace and just add sin to sin to sin? And it's a little bit like that, that phrase, you know, easier to get forgiveness than permission, right? That's sort of the spirit under this. And Paul's answer, of course, is a sharp rebuttal. How in the world can you think that way? And the main point here, we are under new management, we're under new management. And so what follows here really is a discussion on the believer's freedom not to sin. Freedom not to sin. So our starting point here is this. And this isn't so much explicitly in the text, but I think it's critical to underline as, or underscore as we go through here. Uh, first of all, that there's no such thing as neutrality with God. No such thing as neutrality with God. Uh, I think maybe the first disconnect for people who might be reading this passage, uh, it could potentially be this dichotomy here, uh, that you are either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience, or that you are either an enemy to God or friends of God. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't like dichotomies like that. Uh, I hate that, that sort of sentence when somebody starts with, there are only two kinds of people. I immediately, in my contrarian nature, go, no, there's not. There's a third kind of person, the kind of person who hates the sentence that starts with, there's only two kinds of people, because that's me, right? I don't, I don't like those this or that kinds of scenarios. And I don't think most people like that either when they would hear that you're either a friend of God or an enemy. I think they would go, no, 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 I'm sort of neutral. I'm in the middle. I'm maybe not for him, and I'm not really against him, but just kind of, I'm Switzerland. I'm just here in the neutral middle. But here's the thing. Jesus himself taught, you are either for me or you're against me. The starting point of mankind, our default position with God is that we are his enemies. That's where we started. Because we inherited the guilt of Adam's sin, right? He sinned as our representative, federal headship. We've talked about that. And we have received the sin nature at the fall. So we are inclined to sin. In fact, as Augustine would say, in bondage to sin. And we have all of us happily added sin throughout our lives. So we are in default. Our default position is enemies of God, except that God would intervene and rescue us. 
Uh, In Mere Christianity, Clive Staples Lewis, (laughs) he's never called by his full name, so I thought I'd draw that out this morning. He says this, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs a bit of improvement. He is a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. And so I want to start with this understanding, this dichotomy that Paul teaches, Christ teaches, and C.S. Lewis affirms. We used to serve sin, which leads to death. So here in this passage, Paul uses uh, the term slave. In fact, he uses it five times just in this opening paragraph here. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this this morning. So a couple things here. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're here regularly, um, you know by now I don't spend an equal amount of time on all my points. So just I'll remind you of that because I'm going to spend a good portion of my time here. If you're new, I tell you that so you don't panic, okay? That's just that I don't always balance all my time. But I want to focus on this point because I think there's a lot to unpack. Uh, when we hear this word um, slave and see it used positively and use it, you, you see it used so frequently... I think it brings up the natural question, why does the Bible, Old and New Testament, seem to affirm this deplorable institution of slavery? Why is that here? Why does that persist? Why doesn't God correct that? So one of the problems here, I think, uh, that we need to be aware of is what our tendency is as modern-day readers. And that is, it's very common for us to take a pretext and read it into the ancient text. And this is one of those cases where we commonly do this. In other words, we as Americans, we know our nation's deplorable history with slavery. It is a conscience issue for us. We're still dealing with its repercussions today. And we hear slavery and we think that What we've experienced is exactly what was experienced here. And it's just not the case. It's not a one-for-one comparison. And so what we have to do as good Bible readers, we always have to understand what's happening in the original context. What was their situation? What's the timeless principle? And how is that significant for us today? So what I want to do is just show the differences between the U.S.'s history with slavery and what is here in the scripture, what was going on first century Rome, okay? So here's where they're different. First of all, the institution of slavery in first century Rome, it wasn't forced. Uh, secondly, it wasn't racially driven. Uh, it was something that someone voluntarily, typically voluntarily entered into. That's not in all cases, but predominantly. When someone voluntarily entered into slavery like this or a situation like this, they oftentimes gained the stature of the one that they were serving. Uh, They were also entrusted with money and significant responsibilities. Additionally, it was for a set period of time. After seven years, that time of service would end. So it wasn't perpetual. In fact, there was a whole practice in the Old Testament known as the year of Jubilee. Do you know about this? Every 50th year, or after seven Sabbath years, there would be a year of jubilee where all debts were forgiven and anyone still in the institution of a doulos, a bondservant, would be released. And I think, man, wouldn't it be amazing if we had that today? Just think of how that would change lending practices. 
right? That would be, some of you students are like, yes, amen to that, year of jubilee. Uh, Also, once your contract was up, so to speak, uh, one who entered into a a doulos, a bond slave uh, practice, would oftentimes take on the name of the person that they served and continue to work for their former master as a freedman. So anyways, that's, that's what was happening there. So what I want to say is slavery in especially first century Rome was more like employment, contract work, or maybe closest to enlistment in the military than it was the horrendous practice that we have experienced here in the new world, right? So, and also you can see sort of the voluntary nature of it here, right, in this passage, uh, in verse 16, where Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, so let me just, just kind of bring this part to a close here. This doesn't mean that this was always good and that every practice was wonderful and everybody's experience was amazing. Not at all. There were certainly abuses of that. We can go far back into the Old Testament and say, you know, actually, Sarah mistreated Hagar, right? Or the Egyptians, uh, or excuse me, Israel in Egypt were mistreated by Pharaoh. So there certainly are occasions of mistreatment. But what we have to understand, particularly in first century Rome, slavery was pervasive to be a bond slave. Bond slaves made up 85 to 90% of the population in Rome. And that is why Paul utilizes this illustration or this, this metaphor here. And Christians were those, particularly were made up of the sort of a lower socioeconomic class. Uh, and so being a doulos or a bond slave would have been especially common uh, among them within the church. So that's why Paul uses the illustration. Now, I bring all of this up to say, I'm not just trying to remove a black eye from the church. That's not my, my ambition here. But we have to rightly understand the historical context to understand the actual text in front of us and what it says to us today. Uh, so again, our three interpretive questions. What did this mean to the original hearers? What's the timeless principle? How is that significant to my life? So now that we've done that historical work, let's come back to the passage and see how that changes the way it hits. And I think you'll notice this. Because when we hear the word slavery, we think of an outward oppression, outward oppressive force, right? But in fact, as Paul is using this, a doulos, a bondserve, one who has voluntarily entered into this situation, he is talking about the internal force of commitment, duty, and loyalty. Those are very different themes. And so the nuance that Paul is highlighting here is of one's agreement to serve. In the same way, if you've got a child who wants to play soccer, they start off the season, they're going strong. They get halfway through and they say, I don't want to play anymore. I want to play basketball now, which is a good decision, but just at the wrong time. They could play basketball next year. A good parent's going to say, no, no, no. You started here. You made a commitment. You made a commitment to your coach and to your team, and you're going to finish this out. Next year, we'll get you to the right sport, basketball. But you can do this. Uh, Or in the same way, you applied for the job. When you signed the contract, when you enlisted in the military, 
You made a commitment of service to an authority over you. You willingly entered into those terms of service and you need to keep that commitment. So Paul isn't talking about sort of this oppression, this outward force of sin uh, that we've put ourselves into. He's talking about what we ourselves have commissioned ourselves to, what we have signed up for, where our allegiance is. And he says, when you used to give yourself to sin, it led to destruction. But now that you are under new management, right? Now we give ourselves to serve obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. For you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So when you became a Christian, your loyalties changed. Your commitment changed. You're under new management. And so we are those who couldn't even possibly entertain the question, well, why don't we just go on sinning? Because of grace. That's what Paul is confronting. No, you have given yourself in service to another. You quit your old job, this is your new job. You, you left your old employer, this is your new manager now. And I think there's a great point of connection here in this passage to a very beautiful Old Testament promise uh, where he talks about you have come to obey from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Does that remind you of any kind of fulfillment of any kind of Old Testament promise? How about Ezekiel 36? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, spirit, Holy Spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So I said earlier that when I see that sign under new management, I always want to know what happened. Like, what did the old manager do? Do you know, did they embezzle? Did, you know, did... I don't know, the health inspector come in and fail their food storage? You know, what, what happened? That probably has happened quite a lot in Fairbanks, actually. I think we've got some of that. What happened? Well, Paul provides us with the backstory here, verse 19. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, which is Paul's way of saying, you're a little bit slow. You're a little slow. Just as you used to offer yourselves, again, there's that internal voluntary, you used to offer yourselves as slaves or servants to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves or servants to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our second main point here is this. While we're under new management and the new management is much better, we no longer have an allegiance to sin. We have a new internal allegiance to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul just reminds us of really the fruitlessness of our old position where he talks about our old boss, 
How is it working for us? To ask the Dr. Phil question. It was destroying us. And in the name of freedom and autonomy and really selfish pride, I think people choose to sin. I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody bossing me around. You're not the boss of me. I want to do what I want to do. I want the freedom and no constraints. And so people sin and live into sin. And what in fact happens is it ends up ruling us. But let me just kind of walk you through, I think, an important point to understand about sin, and that's this. All sin is just a shortcut. It tries to get something without doing it the right way. It's a shortcut. Uh, It's usually aimed at the preservation of self. So let me walk through a few of these and show it to you. Let's start with lust or sensuality. It is simply looking for physical pleasure without the relational commitment. It's a shortcut. Or theft. It's getting money somehow, but not working for it. Shortcut. Drunkenness, right? An escape from reality instead of turning independence in prayer to the Lord. Or lying is a way of just perpetuating and propping up a false image of ourself. Uh, sin is just a shortcut. Pleasure, not just pleasure-seeking, but a shortcut aimed at the preservation of self. And what it is is always always, always an empty promise. It does not deliver in the long run. And of course, the insidious nature about sin is that it is habit-forming. As John Owen says, sin begets sin. Sin gives birth to sin. We think we're living in freedom, but we actually end up living in bondage. As I was thinking about this point this week, a uh, song came to mind. Um, by, it's a little bit of an older band now, but uh, One Republic, a song some of you might have heard. It's called Counting Stars. I'm going to ruin it for you. <laughs> Pastor's prerogative to ruin songs. Listen to what they These are their words, their thoughts, their feelings about what's in their heart. I feel something so right doing the wrong thing. And I feel something so wrong doing the right thing. I couldn't lie, couldn't lie, couldn't lie. Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. Those are their words, and what they are describing is the addictive and habitual nature, the trap and snare of sin itself. Sin leading to wickedness after wickedness, increasing wickedness, and they're claiming it. So I will say this. It is true that obedience to Christ is the harder thing to do. It is the harder work, but I will say just at first. Just at first. Uh, For example, those things that I worked through before, now let me work them through in reverse. Instead of indulging in lust or sensual pleasure, waiting for holy sexuality, it is the harder work. But holy sexuality is an expression reinforcing true love and commitment, acceptance, and self-giving. And it pays off way more than just the moment of titillating pleasure. Or items stolen, right? Money or something you stole will never, ever bring the pleasure of something you worked hard for, saved for, sacrificed for. Drunkenness. 
might get you through a night and avert some problem, but that problem is gonna be there waiting for you in the morning and you'll bring to it a raging headache, right? There it is. Lying. I got this awkward moment in front of me. I'm gonna lie to escape it. I just gotta get around it, just avert this thing. So I'm gonna lie. Do you know what lying actually costs you? The obvious, of course, is trust. But the second is much more insidious. The second is love. Lying costs you love. Because when we lie, we put up a false face. We put up a mask. We're hiding behind an image. And whatever love is thrown our way, we know it is just this false self that's being loved, but not the real me, because I'm not living truthfully with others. Lying absolutely costs you trust, but it costs you love. All sin is a shortcut, costing us more in the long run. Obedience is harder up front, but it pays out in the end. Uh, You've heard the old um, shop wisdom probably, buy once, cry once, right? Which is usually a way of saying, get get the right one the first time, even if it's a bit more. Uh, Because we know we know the most expensive thing is to buy the wrong one first because we tried to save a little money and now we've got to go buy the expensive one and we've just bought both, right? That's the worst way to go. Well, I think there's a principle in Christianity that's very much like this and I'll call it this. Die once, cry once. Die once, cry once. That is, discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely is a death to self. But what Jesus teaches is that his Im- imitation of him and of his ways is, in fact, the harder work, but it pays off. And that is the paradox of Christianity. Jesus taught, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And by the way, taking up their cross does not mean carry around a piece of decoration. It means carrying around an instrument by which we die to ourselves. They must take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That is the promise of Jesus Christ and the paradox of Christianity. So to break this down into the last point, our old boss was destroying us, but we're under new management. And our new boss is restoring us. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? His program is not just one that results in this ever-increasing wickedness. That was the old program, the old management. His management, his program is one of leading to ever-increasing righteousness and holiness. And I love the way that Paul teases out this, this little bit of, um, about control here. Because it's true. There are constraints and controls in discipleship to Jesus Christ. It's true. When we're living the life of sin, we don't have those up front. Of course, sin becomes a whole lot of control in the end. But there is this control uh, right at the beginning. And I think there's this constant nagging question within the Christian. Is it really worth it? In fact, that has always been the question of someone who is considering what God has said. 
It was Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? That's what the Satan, what the serpent asked her. Did God really say that? No, no, he just doesn't want you to be like him. And so the belief is that she says, yeah, God must be holding, holding back on us. And I think that is what we uh, think in our hearts and minds when we are resistant to obeying Christ. No, I think I know better. God's withholding something from me. And I don't want that, I don't want that string. I don't want that tension. I don't want that tether. Well, I want to close with a, a picture that I hope will be helpful for you as you think about this. I want you to picture a kite. And I want you to think about the internal thoughts of a kite, if you've never reflected on that before. Imagine a kite just sitting on the kitchen table saying, I really love to fly. I really love to fly. I really want to fly. I hope they'll take me outside, and I hope I'll get to fly. And if you take a kite and you just toss it up in the air in the wind, it's going to fly for just a couple seconds, right? It's going to fall and hit the ground. The wind's going to blow it along and tumble it along until it's totally wrecked. But if you take a kite that is rightly tethered to a string and to someone holding it, it will go airborne. It will fly, and it will do what it's made to do. And that is a good picture of what we are. We are not free and autonomous to do anything we want. Our truest freedom comes when we are tied to and tethered to Jesus Christ and his way of life as he intended it. We're not under the old manager anymore. We're under new management, and his way is much better. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can give ourselves to you in obedience and service, that you are the new management, that you, Lord, are our master, and we can say that and know that that is very good and that we have left something that was leading increasingly to wickedness. Lord, there may be some here today who are still holding on to something, some ways of the old life, and perhaps, Lord, today is a time that they decide it's time to lay it down, time to surrender, time to give up this thing, this habit, this sin, this act of disobedience that I've nursed, coddled, and kept hidden. It's time to kill it. We want to be under new management and surrender all traces of the old. Lord, help us to that effect, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.